0: Hello there, this is Lisa Borders and on this podcast, I'll connect with people from all walks of life. We'll talk about overcoming adversity, transmuting the shadow, and moments of illumination. We'll explore what it means to fulfill our potential while maintaining our most authentic selves. And we'll reflect on the lessons we're learning all along the way. If you feel inspired by what you hear, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the community at lisaborders.us. Thank you for joining me, and this is Enlightened. Welcome, Grant Hill. It is so terrific to be with you. We are normally just chatting on the phone. We're doing it on Zoom today in this pandemic-ridden era but it's so great to have you.
1: Hey, it's great to be here. Great to see you. I think the first time in a long time I've seen you. Usually, as you say, we're we're talking by phone or texting or emailing one another. But thanks to technology, we're able, and I do believe people are wired for connection and connectivity. So thankfully, technology has allowed for us all to be able to do just that. So this is very cool.
0: Uh, Absolutely. And who would have thunk it that we would all be using Zoom so much and so well a year into this thing. But I agree, human beings in general crave connection. And you and I have several connections. So we're both Duke graduates. You actually played basketball, obviously, at the university and then went on to a professional career. But your mom and I serve on the board and she is my mentor. So you're my brother from another mother.
1: <laughs> exactly. In the world of sports and certainly in basketball and the NBA, there's, there's a term called a glue guy. A glue guy is someone who who just holds people, holds the locker room together, connects people, and so I guess my mother is a, a glue girl, and <laughs> you and I have become uh, connected and, and, and like a family, like bond, brother and sister, through my mother and my mom. I'm grateful for that, and certainly that is one of her strengths of many, her ability to connect good people and bring them together.
0: That's right. She's amazing at that. Don't get it twisted. Janet Hill takes no tea for the fever. So sometimes I think, wow, what Grant must have gone through growing up, because Janet (laughs) speaks up and speaks out, shows up and shows out all the time. So I know she probably, she and Calvin, your dad, came to all your games growing up and certainly attended a lot of the Duke games. But you went on from Duke to play in the NBA for... 19 years, and now you're a Hall of Famer. If the math is correct, that's almost 1,600 professional games. But basketball, like all sports, is a universal language. Can you talk a little bit about your career and the things you learned, maybe not only in the pros, but at Duke and how they might apply in life?
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Sports really is a microcosm of life. And going back to when, you know, I first was introduced to the game as a young child and learning and, and falling in love with the game. And back in the day, you, you would go wherever to find a good game of basketball. And going back to those early stages, my time in college playing for legendary, iconic Coach K, uh, and then playing in the NBA until I was 40 years old. There's so many life lessons, so many life skills, values that you can take from, that I took from sports, that I've taken from being an athlete. And these are things that qualities, just hard work and trust and handling success, managing failure, learning how to get along and work with others. These are things that I didn't quite realize or understand at a young age that you developing and nurturing these skills as a result of your sport. And one thing I love about basketball in particular is you can go anywhere in the world and not speak the language, not know someone, but be connected by this game. And through this game, learn to interact, learn to work together, learn to assess other people's strengths and weaknesses, how you as, a, as an athlete, as a teammate can fill in the gaps. Ultimately, the, the objective is to win and understanding that it, it takes a collective effort. And I learned so, learned so much from the game. My, my children now are in sports, and I, I'm not like a lot of these little league parents who are trying to live vicariously through their children. If anything, I want to protect my children. I don't want to put pressure on them. I know what it's like to have a professional athlete as a father and the expectations and the assumptions and and pressures that come with that. So having a father and a grandfather who both were professional athletes, I'm very much aware of that. I'm just the supportive dad, but I'm tickled to death that they can experience uh, what it's like to be part of a team and what it's like to go through the ups and downs. And in, in sports you get immediate results and you get it on a very public stage whether you're a 13-year-old playing soccer like my daughter, Lael, and if you make a mistake, everyone's there to see it, and in some cases, judge it. Or at a professional level in the NBA where possession by possession, you're putting yourself out there. And a lot of business, a lot of you know, people who, who work in various industries, it's more like sawing wood. You don't get those instant results and have those results for everyone to see and judge. But for young women in particular, what do they say? More women now in the C suite have some sort of experience in team sports. I'm just excited they're getting that foundation. And whatever happens from there on, I can't predict the future. Although my little one, she's pretty talented, but to be able to experience what I experienced, be able to experience what my father experienced, I'm just, as a parent, trying not to. To mess things up, let them, <laughs> the natural tendency is when, when the coach is not, you know, playing them or using them correctly, or the tendency as a parent is you want to pick your child up. You don't want them to fall. You don't want them to go through and have mistakes or, or hardships, but that's part of life. And that happens all the time in sports. So really managing success and learning to manage failure. So much of growth happens through losses, happens through mistakes, happens through misfortune in your particular sport, but that's life. And those are opportunities for growth. Those are opportunities for self-reflection. So anyway, I could really go on and on about the game and about sports and what it's taught me and what I've taken from it and still sort of reference now that I'm seven years removed from playing. Definitely a major part of who I am and something that as I'm older, I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to participate at at the highest level in my particular sport.
0: Wow. Seven years out, you're the OG now because you're (laughs) off the court and you got daughters, which is so fascinating because you have daughters playing sports. And you mentioned that women, many of them in the C-suite have a sport background of some description. They don't necessarily have played or may not have necessarily played at the professional level, but whether it was high school or college. And so your girls are following in that path. Do you see, and we all know that you're part owner of the Hawks here in Atlanta, my home city, do you see women you think progressing even more so by virtue of playing sports? And let me contextualize that a little bit. So the Title IX legislation was passed in the early 70s. So women are just coming up on two generations of playing sports or having a broader opportunity to play sports. And this is a place where I have often said men are ahead of us because you guys are playing from ball and Pop Warner League when you're little bitty kids all the way up to college and professional. So do you think sports is a path that women can take, at least from a foundational standpoint, to learn some of the skills to navigate, whether it's corporate America or entrepreneurship, or just life in general?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great point. I think the evolution of women in sports, I think naturally lends itself to more women, not just in terms of being the athletes on the playing field, but also in the many positions uh, that exist in and around sport. You think about Title IX, and I, I'm going to reference something my dad says. I want to make sure I say it because it may come off the wrong way. But he oftentimes says, and says, and said this publicly, that he's a, a recovering sexist. And mm. now anyone married to Janet Hill <laughs> knows that an oxymoron. That doesn't exist. But I, I think... The way he says it or, the, or how he mentions that is that, look, his generation, as he was coming of age, born in 1947, obviously not just in sports, but in society, women weren't, were, not in some respects, second-class citizens. And so as he's a reflection of that change and sort of has seen it, lived it, and so obviously is a champion for, for women in sports and women in all industries. But I, I think as you see women uh, excelling, and particularly in our country, Whether it's in in various sports in the 80s and 90s, track and field, and the WNBA, and I think of the women's national team in soccer, I, I think next it's in positions of coaching, positions of power, leadership positions. Obviously, whether that's running teams, president of basketball operations, I think you're starting to see more women involved in those roles. I think that's, on one hand, at least in the NBA, you feel, wow, we're being very progressive and we're all the professional sports leagues we might be um, ahead of the curve, but uh, in reality, we're all behind and we're all playing catch up in that regard. But as we talk about diversity, we talk about embracing all that diversity is, it's not just ethnicity, but it's it's certainly gender. And to really have a full representation and have different perspectives, different viewpoints at the table when you're making decisions, particularly in sports, I think the perspective of women is incredible now my wife who is will admit and acknowledge that she's not a huge sports fan she oftentimes would say you sit and watch sports center over and over again you just saw what happened <laughs> out before, but you insist on watching it again like you've never seen it before and so she still hasn't quite under she doesn't quite understand that but it's just interesting as I've managed my career and whether it's injuries whether it's interactions with my teammates coaches Ups and downs, her insight, her perspective, ninety nine percent of the time is spot on, and I don't know if I get through this journey without her, without her right there with me and her perspective and her advice. She's and she'll tell you she's not an athlete and not necessarily a fan of sports in that regard. I, I know I just I feel if we want to to maximize our potential and be the best, whether it's a franchise, an organization, a league. Whatever that case may be, we need to embrace everyone and, and choose from the best. And really, one thing about basketball, it's the closest thing to a meritocracy. It's if you can play and, and ultimately you want the best players, you want the best people, you want the most talented people in your circle. And I believe there's so many, there's so much untapped potential that's finally getting the credit, finally. I think it is given the opportunity to show what they have. And I'm excited about that, what it looks like now, but also what's in store for the future as it relates to women in sports.
0: Yeah, I love that. And the word meritocracy, I could not have said it better. You are tip of the spear here. Perfect to punctuate and puncture these perceptions of women, if you will, that we can't do anything we set our minds to. And sports is a perfect platform to to demonstrate that. I know that Ernst & Young has done a study and they talk specifically about women having a sports background and all the skills they bring to the table, to the C-suite. But that's true, not just of the C-suite, but anywhere possibly, right? Anywhere that that you can possibly go. But let me pivot for just a second, because you said your dad is a recovering sexist, which I love. At least he admits it, number one, and he's not really that if he's married to Janet Hill, I agree. <laughs> but there are so many who refuse to admit that, right? That they have been born into an era or were born into an era where women were not listened to, where women were not included. And I want to take it a step further. Black people have this struggle beyond gender. Women just have two X's beside their name because it's female and you're black, And I just noticed in an article written recently that corporate America, some parts of corporate America, are thinking about adopting the Rooney Rule to help bring in minorities to corporate America. Now, I'll say it first. The Rooney Rule has not worked for the NFL. And it simply states that you must have a minority in the hiring pool or in the pool of candidates, you can't force anyone's behavior at the franchise level, but the intention perhaps was good, but it's not working in corporate America. I don't think it'll work for women and it won't work for black people either. What do you think about that? And I'm not going to ask you to comment on the NFL. I already did that. The data speaks for itself.
1: I, I think you're right. We have data. We have data that supports Supports your conclusion that it, it just doesn't work. And on one hand, you, you, the intention, you can't fault the intention, but the actual strategy is flawed. And it's, it, 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 it gives corporate America, it gives whatever industry where this would be uh, applied, it gives them an out. You can say you check the box. We interviewed X amount of minority women for this particular position. We did our part. And so, you know, I think we have to, we have to innovate. We have to, it's funny going through last summer and with George Floyd and a lot of the unrest and, and certainly all the focus and spotlight on, on race. And so we were no sort of no longer in this place of denial. We were forced to confront it and forced to have healthy and, and open uh, dialogue, conversations about it. I was asked at some point on one of the panel discussions, how do you change what's in someone's heart? How do you change? I don't know what answer I gave. Obviously, I think some of it requires having these type of discussions. It's understanding that you're condoning racism when you don't address it, when you see it, and you don't call it out amongst your friends, amongst your colleagues, your family, but that's part of the problem. People, regardless of rules and legislation, is what's in people's hearts. What do they truly believe? And if anything, Tommy Amaker, another great dookie who's the head coach at Harvard, said that it took a pandemic in 2020 for us to really see what's going on and, and the symbolism of 2020, 2020's perfect vision. Everything comes to a halt and, and, and we can now reckon with something that we've, we've been afraid to deal with. So yeah, look, we just have to keep pushing, keep moving the needle, keep uh, when the opportunity presents itself, show that we can succeed, that we can add value, that we can change those perceptions. And people who think of the Kinshaw, I think of my mother, I think of others, yourself, who have punctured through, I love what you said, punctuate and puncture, who have had a chance to break through and show and prove when given that opportunity. We think of the civil rights movement sometimes. We think about various incidents and it, these isolated moments. And, and the reality is it was over 30 years. It, it was over a period of time. And change is not immediate. Change takes time. And sometimes we can be incredibly impatient, but we owe it to those before us and those who come after us to continue to, to push forward and create those opportunities. But then look, my mom worked back in the 80s and 90s. That was her work trying to provide opportunities for women and minorities. People call it affirmative action, if you will, but create these opportunities at the C-suite level and management positions and change people's thoughts and people's perception. I think sports has played a bit of a role in that in terms of how we view people of color. It's one thing when you have Michael Jordan embraced by middle America, young white children looking up to this very dark-skinned man. And his jersey everywhere. Wearing his jersey, buying his shoes. I think even the role of music and even hip-hop as a genre that's fully embraced by popular culture, having obviously a Black president, which can work both ways with some things. But I, I, I do think we have moved forward. And sometimes that's hard to see in the midst of all that's happened and transpired this last year and this last... Administration, but it's important that we continue to move forward. And I, I'm not sure I answered your question, Lisa, but <laughs> I'll just say that I agree. The Rooney Rule does not work, and if anyone is thinking about applying that, they need to think again. And I'm not sure what metrics we use or how we how we develop a strategy to hire more men and women of color. But I, I know one of the things is internships. Internships whether in corporate America, in professional sports, so much of that is just access, who you know, relationships. And sadly, there, there are not many of us who have those kind of connections. And so getting your foot in the door, being able to, uh, at a young age, when you're ambitious, you have goals in front of you, you feel as a college student, maybe you can do whatever or accomplish whatever, but to be able to put uh, a position from, from an internship on your resume is incredibly important. And so a lot of times it's just that kind of access, that kind of exposure, that kind of opportunity that, you know, that unfortunately for people of color and women of color, it just doesn't happen at the rate that it should.
0: Listen, I could not agree with you more. And Tommy is spot on, Tommy Amaker. If he believes, as he, I'm sure, and I know he does, that it took a pandemic and 2020 And even the George Floyd murder for Americans and, frankly, people around the world. Because I watched protests, I I swear, Grant, when I saw it happening in like New Zealand and Australia, I was like, oh, my God. So we're not the only people who have trouble with race. We talk about it all the time. It's a social construct. It undergirds everything in this country. But it's all over the world. It's not just in the U.S. So I agree with Tommy that the pandemic slowed us down gave us perfect vision and gave us, it was also consistent. Like everybody saw the same thing at the same time, which hasn't always happened. You and I experience things, black men in particular experience things that most folks just do not experience. So I'm right there with you. But you talked too about access. So let's talk about that a little bit more because I agree with you there. Have there been times where, the NBA, in effect, opened doors for you because you were a professional athlete and you were good at what you did. So that helped open doors. Obviously, your parents helped open doors and give access. But are there times in your life where people didn't know who Grant Hill was and you faced discrimination or people slamming a door in your face just because you were Black, number one, or... Because you were tall, so they assumed you were an athlete and you were not smart. They didn't know you graduated from Duke University. Were there times in your life where you experienced anything like that?
1: Yes, without a doubt. (laughs) Look, there are times now, I think, that I experience microaggressions, if you will. I may have shared this with you at some point this past year, but one thing during COVID, we learned how to execute and use Zoom. And I think we also learned how to the various online or or apps where you can order food for delivery. And so uh, in my household, it it seemed like we were you know ordering multiple meals as individuals. Everyone eats their own thing. This person wants that. That person wants that. And they all want to eat at their own own time. So during COVID, we didn't have a lot of family dinners, but I was the one that always went out to greet the driver, the the delivery uh, of the food. And a lot of times my children at night would order food. And so we're in, this, we're in this life of privilege. We live in a gated community and we have a gate, a gated sort of compound or property within the gated community at the end of a cul-de-sac. And so I'll go out there and to receive the food and I don't want them coming on our property. So I'm out there at the cul-de-sac and I'm always cognizant of... This may or may not necessarily answer your question, but I'm always aware of how they perceive me because when someone's driving to the end of the cul-de-sac, they don't necessarily know that I'm an NBA athlete. They may not know that I went to Duke. They may have no idea who I am. And instinctively, they are going to respond how they respond. And so I'm always aware of that and always trying to disarm them as they're approaching my house, as I'm standing in front of my house. And so, I, and then sometimes I get upset, like, why do I have to disarm and why do I have to do this? I'm in an open carry state. This is Florida. We have loads of examples of, of situations that have been unfortunate, very similar. Those sensitivities are, are very much embedded in me. And I've had things where I'm going for a walk with my dog and somebody's walking in my direction and they'll cross the street. So oh man, that's a classic, right? That's a classic one. Or I could be in a department store that might be a high-end store that has its own security, might be a jewelry store. And I might not be dressed uh, to the nines. I might just be in sweats and, and very casual and, and I'll get followed. And uh, I think these are just, you know, examples of things where you feel and it, it just reminds you. They remind you because look, it, when, when you have celebrity, you have wealth, Sometimes it can act as a shield from those things. But when you remove that, it's a constant reminder of how you're perceived. And that's no different than how I was perceived before I had all these things. But when I was young, when I was driving a car, I mean, driving while Black, when I see police, and look, I have relationships with officers. I, I understand and value their role. When there's a situation where maybe I don't feel safe or something happens, which is, thankfully has never happened. We'll call law enforcement. All of that I get and I, I understand their role, but I'm still scared. I'm still scared when I drive by, The I slow down. I don't want to have, I don't want to be stopped.
0: Is it like a natural reaction? You just do it automatically, right? Nobody says anything. To me, it doesn't say something to you, slow down. You just do it.
1: You just do it. Look, I've been pulled over. I've been taken out. I've had a rifle on the ground, like all of that is Really? I had a situation this summer when- Was it the last dance this past summer? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was a rising senior at Duke. And I went up to to work at his camp as a counselor at Elmhurst College, which is right outside of Chicago. One night, we all were uh, going into the city, a couple of basketball players on the team, and we're going to some function, maybe some college team party or what have you. As we were leaving... 10, 15 police cars, guns drawn, came out of nowhere. We pulled the car over, you know, hands out the window. They pulled us out, threw us down, rifles, checking the car. I'm just thinking at this point, if this guy has anything in his car, if this, like, I'm the one, Grant Hill, Duke University. First of I'm all,
0: Janet Hill's going to kill you. That's the first yeah, thing. Uh, I'm
1: that, yeah. Yes, that's true. That is true. But I'm, I'm going to be the one, um, you know, in the USA Today, Right. you know, who... So thankfully there was nothing there, just we fit the description. And and then once they figured out who I was and at least one of the officers was a a fan of Duke basketball, then things changed and everything was okay. And so just incidents like that, which you've experienced, it helps shape how you you act or, or how you respond when you see law enforcement while driving a car. And my white friends don't react that same way. They don't look at it the same way as they shouldn't because they haven't had that same experience. So I think now we're starting to understand and have a, have a little bit more empathy for hopefully some of us uh, having more empathy for Black men and Black women as it relates to law enforcement. If anything, 2020, like I said, put a spotlight on, on, on some of those issues that we're, we're dealing with.
0: Yeah, I think that is so true. And I had no idea you had that intense of an experience. You're a Black man, so I could envisioned that you might, but I didn't know you actually had that happen in Chicago. But I agree, 2020 made everybody see, so to speak. And it's been hard for people to get their heads wrapped around it that have never had the experience. And their perceptions, their perceptions are one way, like the officer who did recognize you, his perception of Black people and Black men in general was that they're a threat. Right? right? Then you get out of the car or he sees you in the car and recognizes you. And all of a sudden his perception changes because he realizes you're Grant Hill and you're not a threat. You're a Duke person. What I don't know what came to his mind, but that makes me think about an enlightened perspective that he may have gotten just by virtue of knowing who you were. And I don't know if it changed his mind for all black people, but it changed his mind for that moment. And this sort of speaks to the heart and mind point you were making earlier. We can pass all the legislation we want to and say it's illegal to fill in the blank. It was discriminate in the sixties and it still is obviously, but people's hearts and minds were not changed. Not really, because we see this resurgence of racism and white nationalism. Has there been a time where your perspective was perhaps mixed or in one area one way and then you went through a situation not the chicago one but a situation where it changed your perspective perhaps
1: yes i, I think for me you know while i was playing basketball for many years i was always i was always mindful of Obviously, it's going to end (laughs) at some point, and and I prolonged it probably about as long as you possibly can. But that it consumed me. This idea of what to do next, and if anything, maybe in a way, there was fear. I think there was a real fear of finding joy and and fulfillment in something other than basketball, and and not that money was was going to be the motivator, but just what can you do at, at middle age, 40, 41 years of age?
0: Because you're so damn old at 40. 40.
1: My children remind me of that every day. What's next? That next chapter. like what? And I think growing up and, and having a father who, who went through it and his contemporaries, like you, you, you saw that. You saw, I, I think my dad found joy and fulfillment, but a lot of his contemporaries maybe didn't and really struggled. And so anyway, I say all that to say that I felt in some ways, I think I've done a lot of things and might be looked at as one of the, the poster child in some ways of making that transition from from playing to other things. But I was operating out of fear. And that fear, I think, ultimately had me doing anything and everything and and feeling like Every meeting, every phone call, every conference, every convention, like everything was an opportunity. Wow. And strike while the iron's hot, you're still not far removed from playing. And I, I think ultimately, I, I think through that, yeah, obviously some interesting things happened, some things that I'm still a part of now, some great experiences, some new friendships, business content, all of that. There've been some positives, but... I also think that I spread myself too thin and I wasn't strategic. I, I felt like all the things that maybe I've ever wanted to do, I was doing them all at once. <laughs> and hopefully I have 30, 40, 50 more years on this earth. I don't have to do everything <laughs> a year removed from playing. But I think for me, it took getting sick. I, I got you know really sick almost 18 months ago. I had surgery on my lung in August of 2019. And for the first time since I was done playing, I was forced to just be still and shut down and let my body heal and recover. And I just started you know, to see things a little bit more clearly and, and understanding that, okay, one, I don't have to do everything. I can be more strategic, more intentional, uh, more deliberate about what I want to do and really like focus on what's important to me. And reprioritize obviously sports and things in the, the, the world of sports and particularly basketball something that I'm passionate about and certain things in the business world as well so I've actually pulled back since that time and doing less and feeling more fulfilled and I think as a result too more engaged in what I'm doing able to devote more time and energy to jack of all trades and you know a master of none I was a jack of all trades. And so I think having better balance in my life, carving out time for friends, for family, for myself, I feel that I'm on a better path now. And But where I was going, it almost took me to get sick to realize that. And I don't know if I would have realized it if I didn't get sick. It was almost like God was saying, "Okay, you know what? You need to shut down here because you're on this trajectory that's not good. And so I don't know if that answers your question, Lisa, but I think I thought I had to do everything. I think also there was an insecurity having been an athlete and you feel as though you have to try things. You have to you don't have the experiences that everyone else has had. You've been bouncing a ball for most of your adult life and, and now you're pivoting. And so you want to show that you're willing to roll up your sleeves. You want to dispel any stereotypes or perceptions that people might have of athletes. And so I'm just going to do it all. And ultimately I'm doing more harm than good, not just to myself, but to my ability to be the best version of myself in those particular roles that I'm in. That, that was an important lesson, uh, a, a, a difficult lesson, having to endure surgery and kind of being shut down, but certainly a blessing in the long run.
0: Listen, I I remember that surgery, just so you know. I'm sure you do. You scared the crap out of your parents and out of your wife and your kids. And oftentimes, though, it seems like many of us have to go through a crisis before we stop because the crisis forces you, right? It like it just doesn't knock you off the horse. It like bucks you off the horse and you land square on your butt and you it in a hospital bed. Unfortunately, we're so delighted that you're back to you, mm-hmm. healthier, more sustainable you, but it feels like that type crisis, not necessarily a medical one because we all have our different crises, but that ends up being a blessing. It starts as a burden. But it ends up as a blessing. And I just cannot tell you how proud I am that you were willing to have that conversation with yourself in your own head first, and then ultimately with Tamiya and the family to be able to see where you were was not sustainable. So let's talk about some of the fun stuff that you're doing, whether it's the hawks or whether it's art. Tell me about or real estate you've done. Talk about jack of all trades, master not, I'm not buying that for one second, by the way. And let me just remind you that athletes who are bouncing a ball, I heard Sue Bird say this one time too, that she hadn't done the business stuff. I said, do you know how many people cannot even bounce the ball, let alone put the ball in the hoop? So cut it out with you don't have the experience. This is your real job and you are really good at it. But let's talk about some of the things that you've done that you really love. So talk about the real estate. How the heck did you get involved with that? Because you did a ton of that. That's what I remember most, reading about that you were doing before I understood all the other stuff like art and whatnot. But tell me about the real estate.
1: Yeah, no, the real estate is interesting. My, My parents, I guess I first was introduced to real estate, much like I was first introduced to art, really through my parents. And my parents, they, in and around the the DC area, had some office buildings, some apartment units here and there. And so just that concept of owning property, having tenants, making money in that regard, having that exposure to the possibility at a young age, I think certainly was important. But for me, when I got hurt moving to Orlando and dealt with my injury ordeal and ankle issues and missed a good portion of four years back and forth dealing with that. I tried to use my time wisely and be constructive and step outside of my comfort zone and started taking some classes and just meeting folks, certainly as an athlete, having access to investors, to developers, really just learning the market here in Central Florida, which there's a growth, there's a whole sort of growth corridor here as South Florida is almost oversaturated. There's a lot of, and even 20 years ago, there was a lot of optimism about the growth in this particular market and being deliberate, but also understanding the opportunity, starting to invest and primarily commercial real estate multifamily. There's always a need for uh, multifamily as people are constantly moving to this region of the country. And I started being an equity investor with developers, buying up garden-style apartments. And at one point, having almost 2,000 units in our portfolio. And so that's, that was good. It was, it was fun. They made money. Obviously, there, there were challenges. We went through the, the, the downturn in, in 2007, 2008. And it required, talk about adapting and adjusting and, and, and navigating through some difficult times. But we were able to survive that. And, and come out stronger. We have a good product in great locations, and you know, ultimately selling all of our properties. Well, cap rates were really good about three years ago. And I haven't been active lately in terms of investing in real estate. I'm waiting to see how we get through this particular cycle that we're in and dealing with COVID. But I, I always like to say as a kid, I always enjoyed playing Monopoly. And, and what's funny is those years I was hurt, my in-laws, my wife's family would come down and my wife has younger brothers who were at the time in high school and going through their adolescent stage. And so as an athlete, you're missing competition. You're missing being able to compete. And for me, it was Monopoly. And it reminded me one of when I was a kid. <laughs> and so no one wanted to play with me because I'm trash. I'm trying to cut deals. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I turn into this, I flip the switch and I'm, I'm in the garden and, but I always enjoyed real estate and I've done, ex- done well, been thankful for that. I've just joined a board that's a, a REIT. So it's a commercial real estate REIT that's uh, located, its properties in the New York City area. And it's great to be a part of this and understand the strategy of this business and navigating some, some interesting times right now for commercial real estate in New York City. But it's been 20 years and I don't think the idea of investing and or developing is over. I'm still looking, kept my powder dry and looking for some opportunities here in the near future.
0: What's fascinating is I'm listening to you and I'm thinking that early exposure with Janet and Calvin when you're a little kid and you play Monopoly and learn about real estate and you're cutting deals there. Then you fast forward to post-NBA and you're actually do it. You take classes while you're hurt. So that use of your time is really smart. A lot of people could just sit back and do their rehab and do whatever, but you spent that time in a very focused way. And then while you're hurt still, you're like playing Monopoly again. You're honing your skills. It's been more than 20 years. Dude, you've been working on this your whole life, which is incredible that you end up on a corporate board. But I'm just pulling that string all the way through because oftentimes people see folks like yourself and they look at the success you've had and they think you talk about flip the switch, like you just turned the switch on and you were on a corporate real estate investment trust or a REIT board. That's just not true. Like you spent a whole bunch of time, almost your whole dang life preparing for that. But you didn't necessarily know it was going to end up on the REIT board, right?
1: No, no, no question. And it's funny you say that. It, it applies with my collection, our collection of African-American art. It really applies with my role and in, in partnership with the Atlanta Hawks. People don't realize my dad, his sort of dream was to be a part of an ownership group, but more importantly, as a black male, to run a team. And that was his goal, his vision. You know, he, he was a quarterback who went to Yale and was switched from quarterback to running back by the time where People didn't believe or d- didn't think that Blacks were capable of, intellectually capable of. of so
0: wait, but what school did he graduate from?
1: He, gra- he graduated from Yale.
0: But Black, okay, I'm sorry. I just had to talk about yeah. punctuate. Okay, that's like ridiculous, but keep going.
1: No, it's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. So, But I think there was a part of him that wanted to prove that as a Black man that, you know what, okay, you deny me the opportunity to play quarterback, but I can run a team. I can be the president, CEO of a franchise. And so when he retired in the early 80s, he worked really up until COVID, he worked in management with the Browns and with the Baltimore Orioles, late 80s, early 90s, and then with the Dallas Cowboys for the last 25 years. But during that time, three different times, he was with a group trying to buy a professional sports franchise. So in the 80s...
0: Oh my God, Grant, I thought I knew everything. This is a new piece.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Help me out. Help me out. We're peeling back to the onion here, the getting getting to the root here. But no, he had a money guy who was, I guess, the, the trustee of some family trust. And they had an opportunity to buy the New England Patriots back in the 80s. And I think, and, I, and my numbers might be off, but I think the, the asking price was $40 million. And wow. I remember my dad was really bullish on media rights. Cable was evolving and felt that football had, was at an inflection point where the growth potential was ahead uh, of it. And he was trying to convince this person back in the 80s, and he decided to walk away from it because he thought $40 million was too much. And so that happened. And then when I was in college, and, and this was more relevant to my sport, he was with a, a group who actually the guy who ended up developing Chelsea Pierce in New York, a guy named Roland Betts, who was a classmate of his at Yale, They had a deal and an agreement to buy the Washington Bullets, Capitals, and the Capital Center. They had a signed contract, apparently, with A. Poland, but then Poland backed out and didn't didn't actually, I guess a day or two later, I don't know the full story, but had a change of heart, and they could have fought it. But decided not to, because ultimately you have to get approved by the governors. And I'm only getting the perspective here. but And then there was another opportunity when the Browns, when the Cleveland Browns left to go to Baltimore and they became the Baltimore Ravens, the NFL awarded Cleveland a franchise. And I think my dad's group ended up with the highest bid, but ultimately wasn't chosen. And so I was in Detroit, I believe, at that time in the NBA. And so at different stages, high school, college, and then early in my NBA career, my dad was involved in these talks and and very serious opportunities. And so I, I think for me, it just planted a seed at the possibility and that, wow, like this is like, I know when I first got to Detroit. And all of a sudden, I sign this big contract, and, and I have, instead of bumming money off my mom, <laughs> I have, which I still do. I still, when I, when I go home, my mom always asks me if I have money, and I never have cash. So she, she'll give me $500 in cash. I and love it. And she has the big bills. Like she goes to the bank, put the ATM, I have 20s. She actually has a hundred. So she'll give me $500. And, That's how uh, Janet rolls. I love it. Rolls. yes. Yeah. She just, just let me know that she's, you know, she's good, but it just planted that seed. And so when I got to Detroit, I, I spent time with, like, I wanted to know, I'm naturally curious. I wanted to understand the owner, the late Bill Davidson. How did he buy the team? What does he do? What is his business? How did he accumulate his wealth? And, and so it was always something that I was targeting. I was always something I aspired to do. I didn't quite know how it would happen. Crazy enough, oddly enough, it happened two years after I retired. And people had asked me, to your point, well, like people assume that I just woke up one day in this opportunity. I've been thinking about this for 20 years and nurturing it and just developing relationships, trying to get an understanding of how professional sports works. Was almost at times consumed with this idea. And I'm 26 years old, playing in the NBA. And I'm thinking, how am I gonna you know, be in a position to buy a team one day? And so to your point, it takes time, and and it wasn't it was something really passed on from my parents, and that's why I think I'm so grateful for my mom and dad, and for, for a number of reasons. But just exposure, understanding, opportunity, obviously all the lessons, life lessons. You never stop being a parent. My mom was still. She called me the other day, and you know said I split a verb on TV, and how could I? And you know <laughs> I, I argued it down. I didn't do that, and I'm thinking. Uh, and she said, yes, you did. And she went and re- repeated what I said and when I said it during the game. And I guess you never stop being a parent. And But I, I appreciate and value all of it and I'm and grateful for them and, and all that they've done in, in my life for that.
0: Grant, you are a treasure. And I just have to tell you, you have highlighted how important exposure has been for you with your parents, whether it was the apartment buildings or your education cuz I can believe your mother called you and said you split up. A- I can believe that because that's how Janet rolls. She and she's always going to be your mama. You're always going to be her baby. I don't care how tall you get. You're always going to be there. But even the the 20 years that you thought about being an owner and that speaks to the energy and the endurance of time that you put into whether it's your professional career or whether it's being an owner of a professional franchise, which is amazing. And at the end of the day, there's the expertise, all the expertise that you've garnered over your lifetime and you continue to leverage. And I don't mean that in a bad way, in a good way, the people you've met, the learnings you've garnered in everything that you've ever done is just incredible let me thank you for your time. You have been so generous with not only it, but all the things that you have shared with our listeners. I'm just overwhelmed. And I just want to say thank you.
1: Oh, wow. Thank you for those incredibly kind uh, words. And I'm excited. Obviously, to have I apologize. I'm so long winded. I get it innocently from from my. Parents. <laughs> but
0: I love it. I love
1: it. I love it. that you're creating this platform and having these intelligent, engaging conversations. So I'm a big fan of Lisa Borders and certainly a big fan of your podcast and honored and privileged to, to have been on your first season.
0: Oh, thank you so much. We'll talk soon.
1: All right. Sounds good.
0: All right, everyone, that was this week's episode of Enlightened. I hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life. If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week.